I'm Libby Echeverria. We're at the Valley Homeless Clinic in San Jose, California, and I'm a social worker here, and I'm with uh, Donald, who is one of my clients, and he's also my friend. My name's Donald Robert Lee. I'm 66 years old, born 3-7-1949, baby boomer, location Oakland, California. Uh, I would say Libby is more than a social worker. She's more of a mentor to me. I guess I'll start by telling you a little bit about myself. I'm a, born in the baby boomer era. People had a different concept of life, different a value system, you know, different ethics. And everything happens to us in life. It seems to change us a little bit, sometimes for the good, sometimes for the worse. But we are a product of our environment. I, um, I had difficulties in the educational system when I was young. I have dyslexia. I see things backwards. I write things backwards. Okay, And I'm left-handed, so when I write at anything... I smear everything with my hand drags. I got to write upside down to get it correct. Like I put my hand upside. So I had problems with the educational system. Back then, they didn't pay special attention to people with special needs because they had like 60 other students, so it was difficult. But anyway, I survived that. I got a sixth grade education. I, I went to the sixth grade. And then I just thought school was a waste of time, and I kind of pulled myself away from it and eventually just dropped out. My mom did try to mentor me in Christian ways. She was a Catholic. She was very sick, though. She was always in the psychiatric hospital. She had cancer, undergoing major operations, and she was never around very much. And finally, I think she was 47, and I was about 10 years old, and she passed away. And due to difficulties, my father lost his job. And like, you're on your own. You know, I can't take care of you. I don't have a job. Your mom's not here. You're on your own. You know, basically, I was kind of like uh, a vagabond. I was, you know, homeless. You know, and the court system didn't see it that way. It told me that uh, you have improper supervision. Okay. You are incorrigible. I didn't even know it. At 12 years old, I don't know what incorrigible meant. I had to go figure it out. Corrupt beyond the point that you can be rehabilitated by the state. So what are we going to do with you? We're going to lock you up and see if we can find a foster placement to see where to put you. Now, I, I, I can't believe that any 12-year-old kid can be corrupt beyond the point of rehabilitation. The problem is maybe he didn't have the proper mentoring. Maybe, uh, you know, other circumstances plagued his life. You know, things happen. And so I bounced around in and out of institutions for a while. Okay, I became property of the state. I got a probation officer. I have to do what they tell me to do. And if I disobey, then I get locked up again. It's just like a vicious cycle, okay, on and on. And, you know, I've learned a lot of things, you know, not to make waves, try to get along, try to keep your mouth shut. Even when you know you're right, you just try to go along with the process. 
It was, you know, a difficult time of my life. And then just when I thought I was going to get out of the system, and I wanted to get married, I had a job, I was working for Stokely Bank Camps, make pork and beans, made Gatorade, a production worker, you know, like, whoa. I had a job, not a good job, but it was, you know, an honest living, paying job. And I had a girlfriend, I wanted to get married, so I wanted to sit her down. Well, I got drafted. I said, I'm just getting off this probation, being property of the state. Now I'm property of the government. I said, like, what's going on here, man? And every time they used to lock me up, I used to say to myself, what got me through it, someday they have to let me go. Someday I'm going to be free. Someday. And just when I thought I'm going to get let go, I'm in the Army. I got drafted July 11, 1969. It was difficult for me because they want blind obedience. They don't want you to think. You just want you to obey. So I did the best I could. But... uh, Coming from being grown up in institutions, I was a little rebellious. And just as I think I'm going to get through the basic training and all this training they're putting me through, you know, and I'm writing my fiance. She's not returning my letters. She's not writing back. I said, okay. I wrote her a letter and said, look, I can't be there for you. If you found someone new, I understand, you know, because I may not be coming back. So her mom wrote me a letter, and I can remember that letter distinctively. Her name was, uh, my girlfriend's name was Mary Darling Pervat, and Mrs. Pervat wrote me a letter and said, Dear, I'm sorry. I understand my Darlene was very fond of you. I lost my Darlene last month. There were two men indicted on a murder charge. I was, like, devastated. You know, I said, what am I doing here in the Army protecting our country? And the authorities at home cannot protect my loved ones. You know, it didn't help, it didn't help my mental condition in the Army. It didn't help me to be motivated you know, to go on. But anyway, that, that's all we're going to mention about that. So I, I, when I got home, I returned home. That was during the Vietnam era. Many people were discontent with the war. There was turmoil and there was protest with marches on Washington. And to see someone in uniform, you stimulated that anger. I mean, they were, used profanities and they spit on you and they just, they didn't like that because I understand that maybe they lost a son or a loved one that didn't come home. And they were angry, and they couldn't take it out on the government, so they took it out on the people that were in the government. Some of them were just victims, just like their loved ones were. But that's life, I guess. You have to see the bigger picture in life. You know, I launched myself on a career of drug abuse and using, trying to overcome all this ill feelings that I had, and, you know, it it wasn't good, but it's just a way of coping, and eventually I decided that, you know, I would stop this, stop drinking, stop using, and I stayed clean and sober for 10 years, 
and due to a relationship, domestic problems, a breakup in, in my relationship, my new relationship, I went back to things that are you familiar with. You'd return to the things that you used to do because they are familiar and are easier of coping. And so I, I continued down that road, and then I said, you know what? Drugs are not doing me any good, not helping me. During this time, I was homeless most of the time, you know, in and out of trouble, because, you know, you're profiled by the police. You know, they don't try to help. They try to punish. And they punish you for things that you didn't even do, you know, because they don't want you around their store. They don't want you in their neighborhood, don't want you in your community, because you're a bum. You're homeless, okay? Especially... If you don't have the proper appearance, well-groomed, well-dressed, okay, or if you're of a different ethnic background, you're you're profiled, and you suffer abuse, just like you suffer abuse as a child through foster parents and things. You suffer an abuse as an adult because the just the way the society has made you into. You know, it's like I would love to have a a family to grow up with, someone that I could fall back upon in times of need. Even when I make a mistake, there's no one ever there to fall back upon. I have no support network whatsoever. I didn't have any. And I understand that, you know, everybody makes mistakes. I see people make mistakes, but they have help. They have guidance, and they are able to get through it. When you don't have anything, uh, no help and guidance... You lose everything. You lose your car. You lose your job. How long were you homeless? Oh, man. I, I started being homeless around 12 and 13. I guess maybe 30 years, 30, maybe 40 years I was homeless. At times I did manage to get a house, get established, and then something would happen, uh, domestic problems or get arrested, and then I'd lose everything. I remember I had a job once for uh, Porsche Pack. Porsche Pack, it made products for the airlines. I was a maintenance mechanic, and I got arrested. I lost my job, lost my car, lost my house, lost my clothes. I lost everything. And I was found not guilty. I didn't do anything. I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And, you know, I wouldn't have lost everything if I had a support network, someone I could call up and say, hey, go, go get my car, go, go take care of my apartment, go take care of my car. And I, I, you know, I wish you blessings, man. I hope you never have to go through that, you know. And I, I, my, my life has changed, you know. I'm older now. I'm 66. Going, I'm going to be 67. And, you know, I have made a decision that I would try to be a blessing to other people, try to help other people. Because when I see them on the street, I see their difficulties, I'll give them a dollar. I'll take them in, buy them a cup of coffee and donut. You know, It's like, how many times have we passed people on the street and we failed to help them just because we had no legal obligation to help them? You know, oh, they want to live like that. You know, they're just a bum. I think there's a better way in life. I'm not that same person I used to be. I choose to walk a different road. 
Can you talk a little bit about when that shifted for you? You were living outside with a good friend, right? Mm-hmm. In a tent for for many years. Yeah. Um, and drinking very heavily at that yeah. time. And then one day you you came into our clinic, right? But things were shifting for you even before that. So um, maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, well, I had a very good friend who has passed away. Actually, he was murdered, but they didn't investigate it. And somehow I wandered into the clinic here, the homeless clinic, and I knew something was wrong. I knew I needed some help, but I didn't know of what nature it would be. And I met some of the staff members here at the clinic. And my life started to take a turn, started to take a new direction. You know, I've started to want to improve my life rather than just give up. And yes, I was still drinking. You know, I, was, I stopped using drugs. I didn't want no part of that, but I was still drinking. And that... Is horrible. Okay, the end result of drinking is so devastating. You're physically in every way possible, you know. And they told me I was going to die. You have six months to live. You're going to die. And that, at that particular point, that's when the biggest transition took place. It was a gradual process, little steps, little steps. And, but the biggest one was that you're going to die. And I said, I have to make peace with my maker. I said, I don't care what happens, where I go, you know, but I have to try to do the right thing, try to be a blessing to others try to help other misfortunate people that are walking the same road that I had to walk. Yeah. And, I, and I, I can see it in other people, man, and I, my heart goes out to them because I know how difficult it is. So I turned my life to God. In all my activities now, I try to be a blessing to people, try to help people. I just, you know, I guess living through the problems, you have a better understanding of the problems because there's hope for mankind. There's hope for all of us. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like when you were homeless and using and feeling very hopeless, did you still have a sense that you were valuable and that, you shouldn't have to live that way? Or did that come later when you started feeling valued by by the clinic and then you realized, yeah, wait a minute, you know? Well, you you know, you, even to your childhood, you know, you're, you're a nincompoop, you're, why can't you get good grades? Or you're, you're devalued all through your life. Right, your whole okay. life you experienced that. And, you know, and, and when it just gets to the point that you give up, I just gave up. You don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. Just, just the way it is. This is the way society sees me. And then I don't know. I wandered into the clinic one day, and maybe there's a little glimmer of light at the end of the tunnel. Maybe there's people here that are concerned and willing to help. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't. I, you know, when I see you now, I 
you have such a strong sense of who you are and how valuable you are in in the sight of other people, inside yourself, in the sight of God, and how valuable other people are. But, you know, from what you're telling me, you didn't always have that sense. That is the blessing. When you can see the value in other people, that is the blessing in life. Okay? It is better to understand than to make yourself understood. You have to work to bring out the good in other people. You know? How do you do that for yourself? I, I, okay, I have a spiritual contact. I mean, I'm like, I'm supposed to be dead. It's like two years later. So the almighty hand has moved in my life. It is like divine intervention into man's affairs and not supposed to happen. Like, like he touched me in some way that changed me. Can I tell the, the story of, of your change from my point of view? Yes, you may. And then you can talk about what it was like for you. Okay. When you came in, when I first started to get to know you, you would always show up very drunk, completely charming, sometimes grouchy, but um, you were absolutely adamant that you didn't have any mental health problems and that your alcohol was just fine. You didn't want to move inside. Um, you were living at that time in someone's garage, I think. Not, and not like set up as a living space, but just on a sleeping bag on the concrete in someone's garage. And so... I just was like, yeah, let's just get to know each other. You know, that's how I just felt like, you know, I'm not going to, I can't pressure you into getting sober or, or getting healthy or whatever, or going inside. This is your life and your decisions. But we would just sit and talk, right? We would just have, and we had a great connection, you and me. And I think when you came in, you just felt like you're somebody who cares about what I have to say and thinks that I'm interesting and good. And then you started seeing yourself that way. And one day you came in and I would always offer you like, Hey, if you ever want to cut back on your drinking, let me know. I can help you out with it. And, um, one day you came in and you're like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to cut back on drinking and I'm not going to go to a rehab program and I am not going to do it any way you tell me to do it, but I'm going to do it my way. Cause I know how to do this. And you did. And it probably took two or three years of of you coming to the clinic and you were at first you came every few months and then it was every month and then it was every week and you and I set goals together of what how how much you wanted to cut back that week until it was gone and you did it yourself because you decided one day you wanted to and then it was the same way with the housing you you were in that garage for a while and then you were back in the tent over with Joe and then it I was lived, like I lived on the sidewalk at your back door at a clinic. You did. For a while. You did. Yeah. You did. Yeah. Because this was becoming home. Mm. Because this was where you were getting love and support, right? I mean, that's that's the crux of everything. And then and then you were willing to say, you know, I'm now that the alcohol's not an everyday thing, I realize I am struggling with, you know, nightmares and with my mood and stuff like that. 
So you became willing to try medications. We were able to get you onto social security disability, so you had an income. And then, then the housing came along. And that was rough, too. You want to talk about um, when you got housed and it was supposed to be so wonderful and then it ended up being really hard. You want to talk about that at all? Yeah. Um, you know, see, they, they offer you a voucher that helps offset. You pay one-third of your income, but it helped offset. Uh, housing is so expensive. But my problem was I have never filled out an application for rental in my life. I thought the process was that you go and you fill out an application. I didn't know that you had to fill out many applications. You had to pay many deposits for credit checks. And you had, I didn't know that, you know, like, okay, I filled out an application. I'm going to get housed. It's good. You know, and I think people that have been homeless for so long, they don't know. Someone didn't explain to them the process that you have to go Many houses, many apply, many times, yeah, and they don't know. Okay, here's your voucher. Okay, and you don't know, and I, like I didn't know. So the first time I got a voucher, I went and filled out one application and let it go, and it didn't fill out anymore. And said, okay, the voucher expired. You're not going to get house. Mm-hmm. It's like, and I saw what I went through, and I said, you know. Maybe we need to explain to some of these chronically homeless people in order to help them, hey, there is a process. This is what you're going to have to learn how to do. This is what you're going to have to work on. Mm-hmm. And then even when you are housed, you make bad decisions. You let people come over to try to help. All right, now you can come over and visit for a day or so. Cause I, I know you're struggling. And some people mistake kindness for weakness and they try exploitation they try to take advantage of the situation causes you difficulties and you can end up losing your housing again so that's what happened to you right this yeah. lady yeah. Um, moved into your apartment it was supposed to be for one night to help her out yeah. and she ended up camping out Wouldn't and leave. would not leave yeah and you ended up getting evicted because, yeah. yeah. And you were in that apartment for a year at that about point. Approximately one year. About a year, and then you became homeless again. Mm-hmm. I'm on the verge of becoming homeless again. Wait a second, I forgot to tell you, I have three children. <laughs> uh, three little demons. I know, well, you know, I love them, but all children can be demons at times. I have a daughter. Uh, and a son, twins, uh, Nicole and Donald, about, uh, I think, 30 years old now. And Talia's the older, and Nicole's the younger daughter, younger by a couple of years. And I have some grandchildren. And I haven't been able to spend time with them. I've been able to spend some time with them. I try to mentor them and try to teach them of the difficulties, though they don't have to go through them. But, you know, they're seeking their independence, man, and I know you can't tell me or whatever. So it's it's a struggle, and it's a struggle. But, you know, I hope for the best, Mm -hmm. except the worst, if it happens. So after you lost that place, you ended up getting 
housing again, but it was with a friend, right? And that's when you got so sick. We actually recommended hospice, right? We thought that you only had six months or less. Yeah. And that was, what, two, two uh, and a half years ago? Yeah, board, I, I, I couldn't, I didn't eat for four months. I crawl on the floor. I tried to, I grab onto a chair and try to drag myself up. I couldn't get up and walk. My equilibrium was all off. I'd fall against walls. My toxicity of my blood was up in around 12. Mm-hmm. Okay, and zero is normal or good. Zero, one or two is good. It was up 12, and it wasn't improving for months and months mm-hmm. and months. It just would not improve. You know, like, uh, you're hopeless. You're thinking you're going to die. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then one day, and this happened right at the same time that I got baptized and I said some prayers, and then all of a sudden I started to improve. Now, I, I, don't, I don't know if it was just because of the period of time. I, I kind of like to believe it was divine intervention that, you know, maybe the Lord wants to keep me here a little longer because I've changed my ways and I want to do good for others. I'd like to believe that. Well, Donald, I can tell you that it surprised the doctors very much. And there weren't a lot of good medical reasons as to why you got so better so fast after you'd been so sick for months and months and months. I think I was in the hospital for three, two months, and I was, like, deathly ill. Mm -hmm. And now you live with your son part of the time, Mm -hmm. live on your own part of the time, go to church. I'm trying to establish a nonprofit organization and start something that we could uh, give spiritual guidance, okay? Distribute food to the needy and maybe help the homeless. I think I'm very well qualified. In the last few years, I've been going around seeking out people that I want them to join. I want them to be board members. I want them to join. You know, I want to get a grant. I actually want to help people. Mm-hmm. And what's your vision for this nonprofit? You said spiritual guidance, feeding, and providing. Lodging, accommodation. Sometimes recovery takes like a three-month, six-month. The road to recovery is plagued by relapses. You, you get up, you fall down, you relapse, and you get up again, you fall down. But you get stronger each time, and it gets easier, easier. So we provide lodging and accommodations and then a, a drug-free environment, a safe environment or they're not exposed to that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then when they have clarity of thinking, when the cobwebs start clearing out, they're able to make better decisions. Mm-hmm. And like I I see all the programs now. I've been through many programs, the Pathway, Chris List, Kelly House, all of them. I spent years mm-hmm. in recovery. There was something missing there. The counselors were missing the boat, missing the mark. I, I don't know. Some of them, their heart was in it, and some of them, it was just a job. So do you think it was uh, the program, or was it possibly that you weren't ready at that time? I think both. Both. I think I wasn't ready, and I think the program wasn't designed 
you know. To help get you ready. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there are room for improvements. I think I see some of the shortcomings. I think I, I see some of that. But, but if you feel like having what would have helped you get, get healthy and strong earlier would have been a safe environment where you could live, clear the cobwebs, some spiritual guidance and mentorship, a little bit of social support, mm-hmm. right? Somebody to fall back on. Yeah. And, you know, a sense of you getting a sense of who you are and what you want for your life. Because that all came. It yeah. just came late. And we wish it could have come 20 years earlier, right? Yeah. 30, 40 years earlier. Give a person dignity. Give them confidence in yourself. Show them a better way. And you will have a successful person. Mm-hmm. You know? And I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about everyone. I mm-hmm. think that applies. To give them the opportunities. Mm-hmm. Give them the blessings in life that they were deprived of. Mm-hmm. And you will find if everybody lived to help others, we won't worry about going to paradise when we die. We would live in paradise today. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I guess that kind of sums it up. Yep. You know? Yep. Beautiful, Donald.